The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Sometimes following Jesus means that you will suffer at the hands of sinners like Jesus did. This morning, we we come to a a pretty interesting text. As we work through, continue to work through the Gospel of Mark together, we come to this text, which is the only account in the book of Mark that does not have Jesus as its central figure. Instead, what we find is a flashback of sorts to the death of Jesus. John the Baptist. Mark tells us here how John was killed. And just like we've done in the text that we've come before, um, this one, we're going to walk through this text. We're going to draw out principles and truths um, for our lives together. Mark says in verse 14 that King Herod had heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. What was it that that King Herod had heard of? 
What he had heard is the miraculous things that Jesus had been doing in and around the Galilean area. Probably because of where Mark puts this account, King Herod had heard of it because word had begun to spread even faster because the the ministry of Jesus and the impact of Jesus had now been multiplied 12 times over through the sending out of his disciples. So last week we saw as Jesus calls his disciples to himself and he sends them out in groups of two to go out and to do the works that Jesus is doing and to proclaim the message that Jesus was proclaiming. And so Jesus' ministry and his impact now has multiplied 12 times over as his disciples are sent out into these, this, this Galilean region doing miraculous things and proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repentance. And Jesus' name and his fame had spread. We've already seen in in the book of Mark where, where people, especially the religious leaders, are traveling great distances to come and to see what's going on or to confront Jesus in his ministry and people now are trying to figure out what to make of this man Jesus and his disciples and how it is they're doing the things that they are doing and so there are there are rumors all around and there are opinions all around and some are saying that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead And that's why he can do these things that he's doing. Now, understand John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, um, roughly the same age of Jesus, but ministry had begun before Jesus. And and John the Baptist had, had received a great following. So they're saying this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's how he's able to do these things. And others would say, no, he is Elijah. There's Old Testament prophecy that Elijah would return. And others said, no, he's a prophet like the prophets of old. So there's, there's opinions and there's rumors circling all around as people try to, to figure out exactly how it is that Jesus is able to do the things that he is doing. And Mark tells us that when Herod hears of what Jesus is doing, he has but one opinion, and that is John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. This is the worst possible scenario for Herod. Because a man, a righteous man, who he had killed under unrighteous circumstances has been raised from the dead. This is Herod's greatest dread. We'll talk about Herod just a second because you got to understand some of the backgrounds here but one thing you must understand about the Herods is that they are zealous for power and incredibly paranoid 
and are willing to do anything it takes to hold on to power. And so if that is you and you had a man killed and that man has come back to life, you're pretty scared. You're pretty scared. This is Herod's opinion. So who is this Herod? Well, it can get pretty confusing because there are a lot of Herods in the Bible. This Herod in Mark 6 is a man named Herod Antipas. And he is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the person who was in charge of all of Israel during Jesus' birth. Understand that the entire region and all of Israel is under Roman control and occupation. And the Roman government has given the, the, the territory over to these um, leaders... To, to lead and govern those certain areas. Remember, Rome is covering most of the known world. And there's no way for the Caesar to, to exercise control over all of those territories that they would own. So they would set up different territories and, and set up different leaders over those territories. And so Herod the Great is the one who's been given... Um, you know, the rule of, of Israel from Rome. Now, it's important to keep that in mind when we think of the Herods because their, their power is not even theirs. It's given to them. And because it's been given to them, it can be taken away from them and they're zealous to keep it. Well, Herod the Great ruled for 30 years over Israel. And during his life, he had 10 wives. And having 10 wives means that there was a whole lot of little Herods running around. And that's what they were named. Not all of them, some Philip, two, two sons named Philip, but multiple Herods, and it, it can, can be confusing as to who is who and those things. So this Herod the Great, who is Herod Antipas's father, was the Herod that had all of the male infants killed when Jesus was born because he had heard a king had been born and he was afraid that he would lose his power. And so his response to that in fear and pride and sin is to have all of the male infants killed. Herod the Great was an evil, evil man. And it seems that the apple doesn't fall far, too far from the tree. At the death of Herod the Great, his kingdom was split into four parts. And a tetrarch was set over each of those four parts. Tetrarch meaning one-fourth. And so Herod, the, Herod Antipas is a tetrarch who was given a quarter, one-fourth, of Herod the Great's land that he had that was divided upon his death. 
And specifically, he has this, this area of Galilee. So Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. So why is it that Herod Antipas had John the Baptist killed? Well, this is some Jerry Springer stuff. This is a soap opera. Mark tells us, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death because she was saying that Herod Antipas shouldn't be married to Herodias, but she couldn't have him put to death. All right. We'll try to make sense of this the best that we can. Herod Antipas was married not to Herodias, but to the daughter of the king of a nearby region, the king of Eratos. But he ends up leaving her to marry the wife of his brother, Philip. He had two brothers named Philip. This brother named Philip was not a tetrarch. He did not have a rule. He did not have authority or power like Herod Antipas did. Uh, history says he actually lived in Rome um, and, and was probably respected, but not necessarily a very, a very powerful man. Well, Herodias is married to Philip. Now, why would she be named Herodias? Because... She was the daughter of one of Herod the Great's other sons. So Herodias is married to her uncle. And she leaves her uncle slash husband for her other uncle slash brother-in-law slash now husband, Herod Antipas. Are y'all are y'all y'all following the, the relationships here? Whew. Just a side note. King of Eratos, he didn't like this too much. I mean, would you like it if your daughter's husband leaves your daughter to marry his great niece slash sister in law slash yeah, you wouldn't like it either. So he actually forms an army and attacks Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas has a small army, but not enough to fight his army. And so Rome has to come down and push them back. So this is a marriage from the very beginning that has caused a lot of bloodshed. Herodias, probably, because she's a evil, despicable woman, just like her grandfather was an evil, despicable man, just like her uncles were evil, despicable men, probably left Philip for Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas had power. 
So this is the background for why Herod Antipas has sent John the Baptist to prison and why John the Baptist is saying, this is not right. This is not right. Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted him to be put to death, but she could not have him put to death. Why couldn't she have him put to death? For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. There was something about John the Baptist that intrigued him. It was not enough to free him, but it certainly was enough to keep him alive. And it probably is true that it was politically expedient to keep him alive. It would not look good for Herod Antipas to have John the Baptist killed. Because remember, John the Baptist was a pretty prominent figure before Jesus had come. And he said, I must decrease so that he can increase. And he certainly was a righteous man. And a Herod would do nothing if it wasn't politically expedient for them. And so... He doesn't have him killed. Instead, he has him in prison. So how does he get to the point of killing him? Well, you think this story's messed up. It just gets worse. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So it's his birthday. He's a prideful man. He throws himself a birthday party and invites nobles and military commanders and and men of Galilee. And during this birthday party banquet, Herodias' daughter comes in and dances and she pleases Herod and Herod's guests. So who is Herodias' daughter? This is a teenage girl named Salome. So this would have been Herod Antipas' great niece and stepdaughter. And she comes in before them and dances and it was lewd and it was inappropriate. And Herod, overcome with sinful passion, says to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. You know, this is, this is a sinful pride response. To show his, his power and his abilities. And you ask it, whatever you want, I'm able to do it. I mean, you can feel in these, these words the machismo and the, the, the pride. Whatever you want, you can have. I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And the reality is it's not even his kingdom to give. It's been given to him. And so she's a teenage girl. She doesn't know what to do. She goes out and she asks her mother, what should I ask? And here Herodias sees her chance for vindication against John. And because of her grudge against him says, go in and ask for the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist. But she doesn't even just leave it there, does she? No, this is a nasty girl. I want it on a platter. She adds that. Herodias didn't ask that. She adds that. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. These are all, they are all nasty in this family. 
Mark tells us that, that the king, he wasn't a king. He just fancied himself as a king. The king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Now, you can read that and think, well, you know, the scriptures say, keep your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so, you know, good for Herod for keeping his word. His word. That's certainly not what the scriptures intend. This verse, and the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word. This verse is the definition of a coward. A prideful coward of a man who is unwilling to do the right thing because of the way that it would make him look. You know, being a coward can lead to all kinds of evils, can't it? I think sometimes when we think in terms of the cowardly, we think in terms of the shy. It's not a coward. We might think in terms of the meek, but the scriptures say the meek shall inherit the earth. No, a coward is one who knows the right thing but refuses to do it. That's a coward. That's a coward. And being a coward can lead to all kinds of evil. Listen, Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The cowards, the first one listed, cowards. Man, being a coward can lead to a lot of things. We don't need cowards. We need strong men and women who are willing to stand up and do the right thing, regardless of the circumstances. As I read that, I thought of of a phrase that, that Charles Stanley has said throughout the years. He says, trust God and leave the consequences to him. You trust God and you leave the consequences to him. Don't be a a coward like Herod. And immediately, because of this, verse 27, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and he beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to his, her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and they laid it in the tomb. So what can we learn from this account that nobody would preach unless they preach verse by verse through books of the Bible? What can we learn? Well, I think we can learn some things if we look at these two main characters, Herod and John the Baptist. The first is Herod. What can we learn looking at the life of Herod? Here's what we can learn. We can learn that sin is a slippery descent. Sin is a slippery descent. James 1, 14 through 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What's James describing? James is describing the slippery descent of sin that may start with just a small temptation, a small thought, a small desire. But when it is not dealt with, when it's not brought captive by the word of God, it grows and grows and grows and it leads to the point of death. Sin is a slippery descent. The reality is that the human heart is never satisfied with sin. Never. It wants more and more and more and more. I can't remember now who wrote the book, The Great Compromise. But the premise of the book is that no one wakes up one day and says, you know what, today I think I'm going to have an affair and, 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 and ruin my life. But instead what happens is a series of small compromises along the way and a slippery descent into sin. The heart is never satisfied with sin. You may think that that thing will bring you satisfaction. It will not. It will only lead you deeper in sin. That's our heart. That's your heart. That's my heart. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart Come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. This is the state of our sinful heart. Every person is born into sin. Every person is born with a sin nature. That's what the scriptures clearly teach. From the original sin until now. What we inherit from our parents is a sin nature. The scripture says that no one chooses God. No one seeks after him. No one is good. Every person is, is turned away. And our mouths are, are described as open graves. And our hearts are exceedingly evil. And we can't look at Herod and go, my gosh, what a horrible, horrible person. I'm glad I'm not like him. But for the grace of God, we are like him. That is why every single one of us needs a new heart. You don't need to just be a better person. Because you can't be a better person. Because out of your heart comes all sorts of evil things. You need the God of grace to give you a new heart. What sin we see in the heart of Herod. Primarily, I mean obviously it jumps off the page is sexual immorality, but underneath this is the sin of pride. And the sin of pride leads to more sin because it replaces a fear of God with something else. Herod had no fear of God. It's interesting, isn't it? He says he feared John the Baptist. He didn't fear God. This is why you need to fear God. Exodus 20, 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you 
that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The fear of God before you so that you may not sin. We must fear God and his righteous judgments so that we do not sin. John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin is nothing to be trifled with, to play with, to give in to. What may start as only a small thing will grow and grow and grow and grow and grow if we do not take it captive to the word of God and repent from it. And I'm also struck in this as a dad of the generational sin. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herodias, Salome. What was that? Four generations? Four generations in this one story, all the same family of wicked hearts. Wicked hearts. And I hope my kids see in me a new heart. My heart that fears the Lord. A heart that fears the Lord. That's, that's what we learn from Herod. We also learn, you know, don't marry your niece. But we're not in Mississippi, so that didn't apply. I'm just kidding. John the Baptist. What do we learn? Well, Jesus says of John the Baptist in Luke 7, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus has said of John the Baptist, he is the greatest man that's ever been born. That's a pretty high recommendation from a pretty high person. I mean, when the king of kings says, you're the greatest person born ever, that you're, you're pretty important. That's a pretty high recommendation. Yet here he is getting beheaded by an evil king due to evil circumstances. What do we see? We see that following Christ is not a get out of jail free card. Even John the Baptist struggled with this. And Luke 7 we have this account of John being in prison. So this Luke 7, John in prison, sending word to Jesus, has happened before Jesus' Galilean ministry. And in between the two, John the Baptist is killed. But in Luke 7, starting in verse 18, it says, The disciples of John reported all of these things to him that Jesus had been doing. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, why would John the Baptist ask that question? Because he doesn't understand what he's still doing held captive in a prison. If he is the one, then I shouldn't be here, because after all, the Messiah is coming to set free the captives. So are you the one or should we look for another? And so when the men had come to him, they said, that's Jesus. John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? 
And in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered him, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Did you notice what Jesus didn't say? And the captives are freed. What he says is, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed are you, John, if you're not offended by the fact that I'm not getting you out. In that same text is where Jesus says, there's none greater than John. Here's the, que- Here's the question for me. If John the Baptist the last of the Old Testament prophets, a miraculous birth, the one who was sent to be the pre-runner for Jesus Christ. If he is suffering and dying at the hands of evil, then why do we expect anything differently? Sometimes following Jesus means that you will suffer like Jesus did at the hands of sinners. That we will suffer unjustly at the hands of sinners. That's how Jesus suffered unjustly at the hands of sinners. That's how John the Baptist has suffered unjustly at the hands of sinners. Following Jesus is not a get out of jail free card. It does not mean that everything in your life will be easy. It does not mean that you will be blessed and highly favored. And that means you will live in a nice house and drive a nice car and have well-behaved children and a spouse who adores you. It does not mean those things. Following Jesus means suffering like Jesus did. And Mark puts this story here as if to say, there will be a cost at following Jesus. I know he sent his disciples out and they're doing amazing things and he's doing amazing things, but following Jesus is costly. And that's why Jesus calls us to count the costs. No man sets out to build and doesn't count the cost. So the question for us as we read this story is... Are you willing? Are you willing to suffer unjustly at the hands of sinners for the sake of Jesus' name? Because he suffered unjustly at the hands of sinners for your sake. And he calls us to do the same. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Trust God. Leave the consequences up to him. Count the cost and be willing to suffer. Jesus, these are hard words. This is a hard text that reveals to us clearly that following you is costly. 
It may cost us money. It may cost us reputations. It may cost us jobs. It may cost us friends. It may cost us our very lives. Father, I hope this morning that we would be reminded that whatever the cost, it pales in comparison to the reward. And the reward is not only a mansion in the sky. But the reward is you, Jesus. You are our great reward. So would we live for you? Would we eagerly await your return? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.